millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, fans. Welcome back to another episode of La Dame and Latte. I hope you have all had such an amazing week, especially if you've been allowed to eat out, drink out, and, oh my God, use makeup testers again. I'm in Melbourne, where we are currently watching season two of lockdown, and as expected, it is worse than the first. Like, I know that water torture and stretching racks are really popular forms of torture, but I can definitely vouch for lockdown. The only thing that has kept me sane this week is watching Bachelor in Paradise. It is such a treat. Like, watching them hug and generally be closer than 1.5 metres apart, for a moment, I actually thought I was watching Pornhub. Today on the podcast, how to spot an offshore bank account. This week, we asked you in the Facebook group, La Jaman Latte, what are the subtle signs that someone is cashed up? And fans, you were flush with responses. Then the royals. They are one scandal after another. So I interviewed royal enthusiast Jessie to find out why we're still so obsessed with them and whether she thinks they'll be around for another thousand years. Then I review the absolute lowlight of Emma Roberts' career, Little Italy. There are some things in life that we're born with. Talent, good looks, high anxiety... And the ability to sniff out someone with a pocket full of cash. Because when we asked you this week in our Facebook group, what are the subtle signs that somebody is cashed up? You fans had more answers than Google, or at least Bing. And it turns out that you've been cash spotting since you were knee-high to your mama's thigh. Primary school, or elementary school, was a fertile ground to spot the cash elite. Fans Jess and John made it a real priority to hang around the kids at recess that had yogos and dunkaroos. It turns out if you've got cash, you can also pay for your kid to get a good grade without actually exchanging cash itself. You just need to stock your kid up with a 72 set of Derwent pencils. Then they're sure to get top marks in art class. Fan Laura was highly jealous of those kids. Fan Jess reckons that having Foxtel or cable TV was definitely a sign of cash money, but I'm here to rebut that because I always had cable TV growing up, but it was the basic package and we only had it so that my dad could watch horse racing from home and he didn't have to go to the TAB. And let me tell you, it was hell, like flicking through, seeing the Disney Channel and the movie channels and not having access to them because my parents wouldn't fork out $80 a month so I could watch Hannah Montana rude. But the ultimate sign that your friend's parents had money? Stairs. Fans Jess and Marcia will both tell you that if someone had stairs in their house, they were rich. I was so filthy at my parents for not having a house with stairs. And my mum was like, oh, I never want a house with stairs. It hurts my knees. And I thought that was the lamest excuse. But as an adult, it's something I now fully understand. 
As with many innate traits, the abilities really grow stronger over time. And as adults now, we really have a keen eye to unveil clues in the household that probably suggest that the owner has an offshore bank account. Chloe points out that if a fridge has an ice dispenser, they spend in. Not only did they get their fridge not from Facebook Marketplace for $150, but they also got a plumber out to their house to add in a pipe for the ice dispenser. Rich. San Laura points out that every bathroom, yes, obviously they have more than one, has Aesop in it. And if they're dodging tax, they've probably got the post poo drops too. That is well over $100 spent on soap and air freshener. Like, what's wrong with the old gold bar of soap? I actually do have Aesop in my bathroom, though, because I got it as a gift. I obviously don't have $40 to spend on soap. Actually, that's a lie. I don't have Aesop in my bathroom. I've got the Aesop container because once it ran out, I just started filling it up with palm olive. You totally can't even tell the difference. And finally, the biggest subtle sign that someone has cash money is that you don't recognize any of their furniture. It's not the same as yours or any of your other friends because they don't shop at Kmart or Ikea. As Van Nix tells us, they shop at King Furniture, where I did a quick search of how much furniture costs there and a random couch, just a tidy 5k. But Hold your gasps, because obviously they got that sofa like they got everything else in their house on points. Now, personally, I've never had enough points to even buy a blender, and I've had flyby since I was 12 when you just wanted to have cards in your wallet, but the 1%, they get everything on points, according to FanJess. And industry insider Fan Smellen tells us that's because when they do spend money, they just whack it on the old black Amex, like as if you wouldn't be flashing that bad boy everywhere if you had one. And you know the kinds of things that they're buying on that Amex isn't like Coles three-star beef. It's definitely like Japanese Wagyu. So they'll be racking up the points. And don't forget that points also links to frequent flyer. These friends are traveling overseas min annually. Like I don't think they spend their summers on the Murray River or the Gold Coast. To confirm, their international trips are not on par with ours. They are not going to Bali to sit at Tropicola all week sipping on cheap cocktails. They are most likely going to spend our winter in European summer. So I actually think it's really important that we just take a minute and send our thoughts and prayers to our friends that are unable to take their annual international holiday this year due to COVID. Okay, that's enough. Now, one thing that you never want to do is go out to brunch or anywhere with the one percenter and expect to leave feeling good about yourself and your financial situation. Okay, so let's talk it through. Firstly, you're going to need to book an extra seat because there is no way they're going to be putting their new Givenchy bag on the ground, according to Van Zera. They'll probably be running at least five minutes late because they're going to be coming from Pilates class, which unlike us, they don't buy on ClassPass or go to at Fitness First or use all five of their different email addresses to get as many 14-day free trials as possible, they sign up at their local wellness center 
and prepay for their classes for the next 12 months, according to fan Georgina. When they do arrive, they'll of course be dressed head to toe in spenny activewear, or maybe their country road basics if they got changed after class, according to Fern and Jess. Maybe a bit of Jagged or PE Nation, that's definitely the Bayside Melbourne flavor, but you might be able to get a little bit of joy if they have recently purchased Lorna Jane's new activewear collection. It claimed to repel COVID-19, and obviously she's in a fair bit of trouble right now because that's absolutely not true. But you know what? They definitely won't be wearing their old cotton on maternity active wear and their $4.50 Kmart shirt like you are or like I am. You might at least be wearing regular people cotton on active wear. They'll sit down and the waiter will come over to you and ask if you want some water. Yes, of course you say. Then they are still or sparkling. Oh no, you need to get in first, but it's too late. They beat you to the punch and they say sparkling without hesitation. You are immediately stressed because now you have to wait and see if you've just ordered a sparkling bottle of water that is going to be the same price as the meal you're about to eat, which is exactly what happened to Fan Lumbie when she went out with a bougie friend recently. So you definitely do not want to split the bill with your cashed up friends. When it's time to order, as fans Sarai and Karina both said, they will be ordering sides willy-nilly. Guac, hash browns, halloumi, whereas you are definitely not paying $5 for a hash brown, you You'll go drive through McDonald's on the way home and get yours for a dollar. Plus, if you're lucky, you might even win something with McDonald's Monopoly. While you're eating, there'll obviously be great conversation. Work talk is your go-to because what else have you got going on in your life? And your rich friend is trying to make it big as an influencer. As Ember and Mia both point out, when the job doesn't match their cash output, that is a sure sign that not only do they have money, but it's not even their own money. They are 100% being bankrolled by daddy. Fan Claire says that they'll probably tell you that later that night they're going to some concert of some band that they've never even heard of. Like they've got front row seats. I don't know if you've heard of them. They're called the Rolling Stones, I think. As Jess adds, it's because like her dad knows the manager or something. Because cashed up people always know other cashed up people. That's why they have a family jeweler and a family lawyer. Like when I watch Law and Order, I always wonder how people are just like, I'll call my lawyer. Like, who just has a lawyer on call? Is it because people just have so much money that they can have a lawyer on retainer just in case someone in their family gets arrested? Or, I don't know, maybe it's just because rich people know other rich people. Wow, yeah, what a great breakfast. (laughs) So now it's time to go home, take off your pants, lay down on your Ikea couch, watch some Netflix from someone else's account on your Kogan TV while you're crying into your two-ply toilet paper because you cannot afford four-ply toilet paper, let alone a box of sorbents. So you get into your small Hyundai SUV that you bought on finance and hasn't had a service since you bought it while your friend gets into a BMW four-wheel drive that she paid for up front on the Amex. On the plus side, at least when you get home, you won't have to climb three flights of stairs to lay on your couch because it's only three steps away from the front door of your 20 square meter apartment. So there you have it, fans, our interpretation of the life of the cashed up. I am not a royalist. I just do not get the hype. I've tried to watch The Crown at least three times and I would rather lick walls. I find it so boring. But it's one of Netflix's most successful shows because although my brain cannot compute, people are obsessed with the royals. 
For me, the royals are just drama, 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 and maybe a telenovela would have been a better medium to share their stories than Netflix. And in that case, maybe I would have watched it then. But just this week, another drama has dropped. 1,200 pages of letters have been released after 45 years between the former Australian Governor-General Sir John Kerr and the Queen's Secretary. And I'm just going to assume that letter writing is the 1970s equivalent of scrolling Facebook when you're at work, because he wrote a lot, like... John Kerr wrote several times a day. That or he was having an affair with the Queen. Anyway, these letters are like hella important because they were written in the lead up to Kerr's dismissal of Prime Minister Gough Whitlam, which is like a super spicy time in Australian history. Lucky for royalists though, unless you're over 45 or a true political nerd, nobody really cares because they weren't even born when this happened. I bet you even tuned out for the last minute. So come on. Hello again. So in our lifetimes, especially if you live in a Commonwealth country, the royals are so major in our lives. You cannot ignore their present day headlines. Like in the past 35 years, Charles cheating on Diana, Charles divorcing Diana, Diana's death, everything, Fergie, Megan, Prince Andrew. And the one thing I noticed with each subsequent drama is that it gets worse and the royals come out looking less hot each time. So, fans, I've brought in our first real-time guest, 9 till 5. She is a corporate glass ceiling breaker, but outside hours, she's a strong brand royal enthusiast. Like, think a room dedicated to royal memorabilia enthusiastic. Fan Jessie. She's here to explain why people are still so obsessed with one family and if she thinks that Queenie and friends have a future in our society. Hello, Jessie. Welcome, and thank you for being our very first official live guest. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, before we get into the mass hysteria around the royals, can we start with why we even have a monarchy in the first place? Like, wasn't James Cook just like, Dibs, I'm president now, I'm going to rule here from the beginning? Well, I guess if you want to start right from the beginning, that would have absolutely nothing to do with any white people and definitely not Queenie or any of her relatives. Good point. Yes, we are just talking about invaders ruling other invaders, so we should definitely acknowledge that. Yeah, so I guess if we're talking from James Cook's time only, it was all about the monarchies. So the money that came from them is you know, funded those exploratory missions like Cooks and others. And the government that formed in their name set up the original Australian colonies. And what do the English do best? They set up replica nations of their own across America, Canada, parts of Africa, and obviously Australia. So along with their money for buildings, towns, came their governors, their laws and claims on the land. And they also set about renaming everywhere. And that privilege often fell to the royal families. You know, Melbourne was named after Queen Victoria's fave political advisor and prime minister. And, you know, the rumour is her lover, Lord Melbourne. Yes, you'd say we've been attached to the English monarchy as a result of all of that. That's so juicy. I imagine having a place named after you is like the ultimate form of flattery. I have just added it to my list of lifelong goals right now. I guess other countries were also like, "Mm, no, thanks. You can leave now. We've got this. Like America. I've just watched Hamilton. So I know (laughs) all about that. But I guess Australia were just like, yeah, we're pretty happy to keep the royals around because they keep us flattered by naming things after us. Yeah, we 
have such an attachment to them. So I guess just for all of our listeners or your listeners, Australia is a federation, a constitutional monarchy and a parliamentary democracy. So that means that Australia has a queen who resides in the UK and is represented in Australia by a governor general. So it's a really different setup to the US um, and that's a whole other discussion on why they don't have this setup. But by- I feel like we don't need the discussion though. We just People could just definitely go and watch Hamilton. Okay, I digress. (laughs) Yeah, you do. The Governor General can act only on the advice of the elected government. So we're very still, you know, very much still governed by ScoMo, no matter how you look at it. Do you mind if I do a bit of a deep dive in history? Go for it. I'll um, click the audience back in just in case they (laughs) zone out. Go. (laughs) So in the early years of Federation, the Governor General was appointed by the British government and was usually a Brit. In 1930, the Australian government demanded the right to make the selection, though, and Sir Isaac Isaacs, what a name, became (laughs) Aussie to be appointed to the office. Since 1965, all governor generals have been Australian. So the issue of our country's constitutional status as a monarchy is a contentious one. We have a strong movement advocating the re-establishment of a republic, but the movement to retain the monarchy is also strong. In 1999, voters rejected a proposal for a republic in a national referendum. It was a bit sad that we were all too young uh, to be able to vote, but let's remember Princess Diana had only died only two years earlier, so royal sentiment here was still really strong. I vaguely remember that referendum. Obviously, I was a very young child, and if you zoned out for that history lesson, it's time to come back. Yeah, my opinion of the Queen has always been that she's such a figurehead, so why bother spending taxpayer money to make a relatively superfluous structural change? But I really had never thought that Diana's death would have factored into it at all. Which brings me to my next question. Why do people care so much? What is the obsession with the royals? And what's the difference between the love for them here and the love for them in England? So I guess if you fast forward to 2020, you have the most dynamic period for the English monarchy since the Diana years. I don't think Australians have actually changed much in how they follow royals despite that. There's still constant coverage in trash mags, non-stop references um, to princesses on morning TV and mass hysteria for any royal visits. It feels more about the fairy tale for us Aussies. You know, we love the story of Mary from Tasmania and her dashing Danish prince, the elegant style of K-Mid and all the pomp that comes from any royal wedding. In England, it's a much more complicated story. There's still the relentless media coverage, but it's this sort of melting pot of respect and love and pride because they are English and they've got this deep history with them. But it comes with this intense examination and this criticism and hate. So it stems from the absolute opposite lives that these royals live in comparison to most Brits. You know, the difference between, you know, the London Kensington set that you see and the rest of the UK and, you know, in some parts, real poverty, it's just the total opposite to the royal lives and and what they're doing today. Is that why maybe there's not a lot of love and pride for Meghan coming out of England because maybe it's a bit too far? I mean, her slaying has been brutal and I think 10 out of 10 people in her position would do absolutely the same thing in bail. Why do you think Meghan in particular has experienced so much hate? The hate's on a complete next level. You know, Meghan Markle accelerated all of those mixed feelings in the last year, um, even. 
So just as the country came out of Brexit whilst dealing with a less than average pandemic response, you know, she's been still, um, you know, in amongst all of that angst. Not a great time for all in general, but then also what a reminder that the royals actually don't do much these days. I mean, other than attending charity events and, you know, leading fashion on the field at Ascot and bringing in the tourism dollars, all of which they basically can't do at the moment. And they're, you know, partaking in Zoom conference calls. But on Megan specifically, you know, she's had a rough ride no matter which way you look at it. She's had to deal with the most negative media attention since the Diana years. All of her family baggage from the past has been coming to light, all whilst adapting to the responsibilities of being a new royal. She is so lucky to have snagged Harry, Ovi, he's a dreamboat, but she is equally as unlucky to have such a douchebag as a dad. Exactly. Who wouldn't want to be with Harry? He's definitely the better brother. All of the father-daughter drama that's been going on, that is one really huge issue of her public perception. But I think the other one, which is a really hard one to front up for everyone, is the very key fact that she's biracial. And it's Mm. hard to ignore that this could have played a role in the treatment of her in the media. So probably in all the negative ways you'd expect, but also I think her status came with much higher expectations than previous new royals like Kate or, you know, really any of the partners that have married into the family. You know, she was expected to be a beacon of diversity, unite different cultures, (laughs) inspire young women, all whilst towing the royal line at all times. So it had all the makings of a fail from the get-go. You know, each time she wore something a bit different, styled a messy bun or opened up about pressures, showed any emotion, she was vilified in the media. And I, I say that in kind of the past tense, but it's still happening. So apart from the fairy tale aspects of being a duchess and all of the perks, which I'm assured that there would be like many, I think so many. most of us would opt out of a shit show like that. So, you know, if you think about Diana and Fergie, they both divorced their husbands and tried to escape the limitations and pressures of royal life and both in completely different ways. I mean, Fergie holds on to that household and and all of those perks, but neither of them have had much success in doing that. Yeah, I mean, Fergie could have definitely divorced Andrew for other reasons, but we'll get to that. (laughs) But, yeah, I I think when you really spell out the expectations of Megan, it sounds so overwhelming and immense. Like, I can't even deal with the pressure to get dressed every day right now. I cannot even imagine the global... Yeah, and it is. It's a global expectation Mm, to unite cultures and inspire women. And I just think with these royal expectations for her and her predecessors, like you said, they've really been set up to fail. They've got no hope. So I don't know, is it maybe time for Queenie and her friends to evolve some of these practices and expectations so they can remain relevant? Back in 2018, during the build-up to Meghan and Harry's wedding, I would have answered this question completely differently. But so much has changed since then. You know, a mixed-race woman has married her prince and been destroyed repeatedly in the media without any ability to defend herself. So there's this standing agreement that the royal family has had with the UK media, not global, of course, but with UK, since the early 1900s, where they will grant only limited media access to key outlets but also not comment or disagree on any outlandish stories that are published. You know, that feels really old school when you think about how media works today with the rise of social media and the decline in journalism. You know, why should only a few hold access to the royals and yet also be free from direct criticism? There's that, you know, that's completely uh, has not evolved with the times. 
Yeah, there's uh, no doubting that their current media strategy has not served them well in their (laughs) most recent royal disaster. We could not do this interview with talking about old mate Prince Andrew. What a shit show. So um, do you reckon he's sweating yet? (laughs) Yeah, so, you know, he is reportedly Queenie's favourite son, you know, and his besties, Jeffrey Epstein and um, Gilles. Well, yes, was, were running a sex trafficking ring and he's accused of partaking in that abuse when they came to London town. So, you know, there's pretty solid photo of him with the survivor, Virginia Dufry, as well. There's also his train wreck interview, which you're talking about, where he talks about everything from it being an unusual night because he went to Pizza Express. Now, for those not familiar with Pizza Express, it's a staple of UK life and is exactly as it sounds. And also I wanted to mention that there's some dough bowls, which everyone should experience once in their life. So through to him stating that it wouldn't be him uh, because he doesn't sweat like what Virginia described because he has a medical condition. So, you know, criminal activity, an absolute PR disaster. And I recommend anyone who's not watched that interview on YouTube do so because it's an absolute laugh from start to end. And, you know, who knows where it will go now um, that Ghislaine has been arrested. He's been removed from active royal duties, but I think it forces all of us to question why someone would have any privilege over others, you know, just purely based on their bloodline. I mean, first of all, I need to state that I'm so disappointed in myself that I did five years of French at school and I can't pronounce Ghislaine, 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 Ghislaine. Ghislaine, what a waste. But uh, yeah, I would argue that they shouldn't be treated differently based on their bloodline, especially if they're a sex trafficker. I guess that privilege is the very essence of a monarchist rule. So what does the future hold for royals? Do you think the monarchist rule and that privilege based on bloodline has a place anymore? I think that's a whole other discussion in a way for the UK and, and what they do with their monarchy long term, because they do bring in millions and millions of dollars in tourism, which doesn't help at the moment, but certainly in future. And just the whole perception of of British and what it means to be British, you know, the royals are doing a strong role there. Meghan has completely thrown a spanner in the works, but I don't think that that means that they'll be looking to overthrow their monarchy anytime soon. I think for Australians, though, the shine is starting to rub off. And the fairy tale won't hold forever. If you look at the media coverage, you know, Who magazine, which I think is probably one of the better of the trash magazines, they are grasping at straws to cover anything that's relevant to the Australian audiences. Married at First Sight is up there, you know, before Megan. I guess if they ran some serious polls in 2020 about whether we should exit our constitutional monarchy now... I personally believe republics would win and that's even with, you know, being an avid royal follower. They've just become quite irrelevant. Like I said, you're here because I don't understand. For me, they are irrelevant. But when you talk about maths being (laughs) on the hierarchy, a notch higher, that just, that makes me mourn. That doesn't sound right. (laughs) But, I mean, who knows what's next in 2020s? I guess watch this space. And thank you so much, Jessie, for joining us and being our very first interview. Yes, thank you. It's been lovely. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Some people might describe this movie as Romeo and Juliet with pizza. They would be estupido because Romeo and Juliet is a literary masterpiece and this is not. Little Italy has more cheese than your nonna's margarita, topped with all the rom-com cliches and a healthy side of offensive racial stereotypes. Nikki and Leo were best friends growing up. Their parents owned a pizza shop together in Little Italy, Toronto. But this wasn't your regular pizza hut. For one, there's not one sweaty man covered in flour to be found. Everything is caricature Italian. The accents, the Peroni, the gangsters, the family, Luigi's bar around the corner. Everything is Italian except the lead actors. Nikki is played by Emma Roberts, who is not Italian, and Leo is played by Hayden Christensen, who is Scandinavian. (laughs) One year at Little Italy's best pizza competition, Nikki and Leo's dads have a huge fight. They won't tell anyone what it was about, but they're banned from the competition. They cease their business partnership, and Nikki's dad opens a shop next door. Ooh. Nikki has bigger plans for her life than working in the family pizza shop, and she flees to London to go to culinary school. She's about to hit the big time when she has to return to Canada for two weeks to renew her visa. Even the tiniest details about this movie aren't original, because that plot is straight out of the proposal with Ryan Reynolds and Sandra Bullock. Anyway, she immediately reunites with her former best friend Leo in the rain. The rain is a bit premature for mine. They've only just reunited. It's obviously too soon for them to be soaking wet and have to get changed and accidentally see each other naked and want a bone scene. But don't worry, that's coming. Leo invites Nikki over to dinner and he makes her pizza, obviously. He takes her upstairs for a rooftop date. It's beautiful, says Nikki. His rooftop garden is filled with plants and, of course, tea lights because it wouldn't be a rom-com without tea lights. He shares with her his hopes and dreams to one day open his own shop using only organic ingredients that he grows on his rooftop. So organic ingredients like grains for the flour, a cow up there for the cheese, tomato for the sauce. No, none of that. He just has like 500 basil and oregano plants. So he's basically just a white girl growing herbs in her apartment. Nikki is so overwhelmed by his entrepreneurship. Nobody has ever used fresh herbs on a pizza before. She's in love. The next night, while Nikki's upstairs in her bedroom, Leo climbs up the side of her house and delivers her a heart-shaped pizza. Oh, cute. But honestly, are these people not sick of pizza? If I have a Domino's, I'm good for at least a week. And also, how is she still so skinny eating all this pizza? The next day, they go on a montage date. They ride around town on Leo's, of course, moped. And at the end of the date, they drive through a burst water pipe. Uh Uh-oh, they're all wet. Better get changed. They go back to Leo's house and they catch each other semi-nude. It's on. Bang. Cue fade out. 
Nikki finds some reason to be mad at Leo, something about him not changing, because they obviously have to fight before they can have their big makeup scene. While Leo and Nikki have been engaging in their tryst, their families have continued quarreling in their over-the-top cartoon style. There's a lot of, what are you doing on my property? What are you doing? Hey, hey. Also, while that's been happening, Leo's nono and Nikki's nana have fallen in love and their families are forced to reunite at a surprise dinner when they announce they're getting married. Because everyone is so feudy, I guess Nikki and Leo just don't register the fact that they're now about to be cousins. The families decide that the only possible way that they can settle this ongoing feud once and for all is at the Little Italy Best Pizza Competition, which the dads can't cook at because they're banned, so the competition will have to be between Nikki and Leo. It's the day of the big cook-off. Nikki and Leo make it through the first round, and now they have to cook off against each other in the final. Wow, didn't see that one coming. They have to cook their very best margarita, and I am so hungry. This is probably the only part of the movie I genuinely cannot predict what's going to happen next. The pressure is on. Family reputation is at stake. The crowd's going wild. The winner is... Leo. Conveniently, Nikki has her suitcase packed and ready to go, and there's a taxi waiting to take her to the airport as soon as the winner is announced. Leo takes his trophy, then he takes his pizza. Hang on, he says. That's not my sauce. Nikki must have switched the sauces. He can't accept this very prestigious accolade of best pizza in Little Italy, Toronto. The winning pizza is a joint effort. He summons Nikki back on stage to share the prize, but it's too late. She's already on her way to the airport. Cue airport scene. Leo and all of the families rush to the airport. Lucky for them, there's a really long line at security. Nikki's at the front, but she keeps going off through the metal detector. Nikki, stop! Leo sees her from the top of the staircase. She's like, uh... I already told you I don't want to work in my family pizza shop when I can go to London and be a chef at a bougie restaurant. By this point, the whole family and Luigi from the bar have arrived. The whole airport has stopped to watch this very unpredictable scene. Leo is like, I'm in love with you. I always have been. I always will be. I'm not afraid to tell my father that I want to start my own shop. Please, Nikki, stay. Not for me. With me. The airport attendant is like, um, don't be stupid, go to London. Nikki doesn't say anything. She just walks through the metal detector and then promptly comes back like three seconds later. They kiss and everyone claps. Ugh. Flash forward and they've opened their pizza restaurant together called Pizza Organica, where they're currently hosting their grandparents' wedding. Also, now they're officially cousins and I just guess that's legal in Canada. The end. Thank Jesus for that. That movie had visually appealing actors and food and I still hated it. That's how bad it was. Two out of ten. Do not watch it. Thanks for listening to Large Arm and Lache. If you loved the podcast, a five-star rating and review would really help validate us. Large Arm and Latte exists because of your opinions, so keep sharing them in the Facebook group Large Arm and Latte, on the gram at Large Arm and Latte Media, and visit largearmandlatte.com to read, write, engage, subscribe to our newsletter, and generally get your peepers around even more brunch banter. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.